the the rest of the scene before that is basically Humaroon saying over and over, see, the system works. We are asked to do terrible things because we're the lowest rung, but then you get promoted. What's going on, play-reading enthusiasts? Welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. And I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We are coming at you from day whatever of the great (laughs) toilet paper famine of America. The (laughs) self-isolation is real. Hope y'all are doing all right out there. (laughs) The great thing about podcasting is that you don't have to see or touch or be near anyone. Yeah. Especially we, podcasting states apart. Right. We we don't even live remotely in the same region of the country, so we can continue our work, and you don't ever have to see our faces, I guess, except on our logo package thing. Right. Uh, so <laughs> no worries from you. You will continue to hear and receive the content that you are used to as we head into this question mark of a month, huh? Yeah, yeah. Crazy times, crazy times. Hope y'all are doing out there. And we're excited to get to continue talking about plays with you and with each other. So, uh, I mean, we're jumping into uh, the second time we've done this playwright before. Yeah, this is a return visit to this playwright. Absolutely right. Rajiv Joseph, we have discussed before his script Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo and now we are coming to another of his plays that kind of made an explosion in the world of regional theater Guards at the Taj yeah Guards at the Taj this is a great little two-hander play um there's and yet there's just so much packed into these two characters talking it almost like evokes a waiting for Godot level of or or Rosencrantz and Guildenstein are dead that's what it reminds me most of it has that feeling sort of it's a buddy-buddy sort of play, primarily about male friendship, which uh, is very well represented in the world of two-handers. Female friendship is not as well represented, which is sort of sad, but this is one of the great plays in that continuation of male friendship two-handers. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's, it's it's anachronistic, so you get the you get the fun energy of like it's a play set in the past, but talking as if modern day. So yeah, I'm excited to get to jump into it. But before we do that, we want to ask all of you listeners out there, head on over to patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. Again, that URL, patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. There you can become a supporter of the show. We want to say a big thank you. We, in fact, cannot say enough big thank yous to the people who are already supporting the show. You're incredible. You're awesome. Thank you for the support you're offering, the continued production of NoScript. If you haven't yet become a supporter, we really want to encourage you to do that. Jackson and I love to do no script. It's something that we're passionate about. It's something that we look forward to. It's a great part of our lives. It is not a free part of our lives. And alas, we wish it were, but it is not. So we're asking you to help support the production costs of the show. You can do that at patreon.com slash no script podcast. There you can become a monthly uh, donor, a monthly subscriber to the Patreon. And you can do that at different levels. The lowest level is $1 a month for just a 
dollar a month, $12 a year total. You can support the continued production of No Script the podcast. Once you do that, if you're a, if you're a patron at any level, you'll have access to our patron-only posts. Typically, that includes advance notice of the scripts that we're going to be covering in the upcoming months. So, uh, our patrons, for example, knew for a while what the mini month uh, scripts were going to be. Just as one example of the perk, but we really want to ask you to head on over there. And again, big thank you to everybody who's already become a supporter of No Script. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. Y'all are such a blessing out there. Thank you for heading over to patreon.com slash podcast, and we'll see anyone who comes and visits over there. Uh, I do want to just tie in the thing that you just brought up, which is mini month, Jacob. Yeah, yeah. We're doing our fourth themed month coming up here. Yeah, yeah, and it's going to be mini month, which is, uh, if you've listened to any of the previous announcements, you already know it's a month of one-act plays and uh, engaging with the the different dramatic structure that one-act plays offer to theater and uh, dramatic literature. Yeah, there are so many awesome one-act plays out there, just a plethora, a treasure trove of incredible scripts. And this is not to say that this is the last time that we'll talk about One X, just like Musical Month way back in Season 1 was not the last time that we talked about musicals, but it is the time that we're going to spend a month specifically focused on the art of One Act writing. We're going to cover some of the seminal One Acts in the world of dramatic literature, and then we'll continue to try to involve those in our programming in some way, though we're not entirely sure how that looks going forward. Yeah, yeah. And just for your reference, uh, these are the plays that are coming up. We're doing Sister Mary Ignatius Ignatius Explains It All For You by Christopher Durang. We're doing Far Away by Carol Churchill, The Shawl by David Mamet, and Trifles by Susan Glaspell. Yeah, those are really, really good one-acts. If you love one-acts, if you love dramatic literature, you recognize some of those titles, I'm sure. You probably at least recognize all the playwrights. And so we're going to be kind of hitting the high points, and then we'll we'll see how we return to those one-acts in the future. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, with that being said, it is time to jump into our script for the week. You, I mean, you just you just sort of said that. I'm just going <laughs> to say again, in, in you know, in in the tradition that we've established. Now back to the script. There we go. We're back <laughs> into the script. <laughs> uh, we are. Just, I'm just going to give you a little bit of context for the script. Uh, Guards at the Taj, as written by Rajiv Joseph, uh, was first produced in 2015, and that production was in New York at the Atlantic Theater. Uh, yep, Atlantic Theater Company. And uh, since that original production, it has experienced just like a regional maelstrom of, of, of different productions. Uh, throughout different regional houses, it's been done. Uh, and, and that's actually how we heard about the play. One of our patrons who live in Chicago went and saw the play at Steppenwolf Theater and just loved it. And he recommended this play to us. And so this is it's, it's a two-hander again. So it's just two folks in the play, a very producible play. And it's just enjoyed a long life ever since it was first produced in 2015. Uh, up till now still still doing plays so this is it's still a relatively new script in the vernacular of of theaterness but uh certainly a valued one as it is moving forward 
Absolutely. I We looked back at the Pulitzer nominees and winners from the years around when the script was written. You know, sometimes when a script is actually written in the year it's up for a Pulitzer, differentiate a little bit. So we looked at 14 through 16, and there's a lot of great scripts in those. There's a tough couple of years for playwrights in terms of the competition for Pulitzers because yeah. there are some great scripts. But there's also some scripts that you're like, I'll, I'll never see that script again. <laughs> and it it's interesting because for all my life, I can't figure out why the script wouldn't have at least been nominated for a Pulitzer in one of those years. It's an incredible script. Yeah. Just an awesome, awesome play by Rajiv Joseph. The play follows, like we said, two-hander, two characters, two young men, Humayun and Babur. And as the title would suggest, incredible title, by the way, uh, as the title <laughs> would suggest, Humayun and Babur are guards at the Taj, the Taj being the Taj Mahal. They are on the very lowest rung of the Imperial Guard. We learned that in scene one. And we learned that if you're on the lowest rung, your task is to guard the Taj Mahal, which is currently under construction, about to be revealed for the first time, without ever looking at it. You stand with your back to it. So the play opens with these two young guards guarding the Taj Mahal on the night before it's about to be finally revealed. In fact, they say that the dawn's light is going to be the, the most beautiful, most perfect moment of the Taj Mahal because that, that's the first time it's going to be revealed and it's going to be sort of untouched by all the elements. And these two poor guys are the ones who are going to have to guard it when this big reveal happens. And so they're the ones that are not going to be able to see it at that moment. The, the play follows their relationship quite a bit. So Humayun is the son of, like, the captain of the Imperial Guard. He's uh, very strict in terms of his rules. He's grown up sort of really buying into the system of the emperor being this divine character. What the emperor says goes. The emperor's decrees aren't questioned. And that's really been built into him, you would imagine, presumably by his father. Whereas Babur is a... He's a, he's a looser goose, you know? <laughs> he he his sense of the rules is much lax that the Rajiv Joseph does an incredible job setting this up right away. Humayun, the play opens with him standing guard, you know, at attention, sword on his shoulder, and, uh, all, and alone on stage. And Babur sort of sneaks in clearly late to his post and then puts his sword on the wrong shoulder. That, I mean, that's just great writing to immediately set up the relationship of these characters. So a, a lot of it is about their differing worldviews as they've grown up. We're clear that their friendship has lasted for a long time, Clearly, they've grown up together in some capacity, longtime friends. Here are the major plot points that happens. Because the Taj Mahal is about to be revealed, and we can discuss why the emperor comes to this decision, the emperor decides, as is the great myth surrounding the Taj Mahal, that he doesn't want anything as beautiful as the Taj Mahal to ever exist again. So the architect and all 20,000 of the workers who completed the Taj Mahal are to have their hands chopped off in order that they might not create anything as beautiful again. Now, being the lowest rung of the lowest rung of the Imperial Guard, Humayun and Babur, in a very funny reveal moment, sort of discover for themselves, crap, we're going to be the ones who are going to be asked to cut off all these hands. So scene two is just after having cut off all these hands in a sort of stark 
terrible dungeon room filled with the blood of people's arms whom Eun and Babur are recovering from the fact that they have just chopped off all these people's hands. In the next scene, it's discovered that because they did such a good job with the hand chopping and didn't complain about it, they were promoted to harem guard duty, which is like the best position, you know, in the harem, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, uh, to to guard uh, the emperor during his times in the harem. Uh, however, Babur, in recovering from the terrible experience of having to do all this violence, decides that he wants to kill the emperor as part of his harem guard duty because he's going to have unrestricted access to the emperor now. Humayun arrests Babur for that, uh, hoping just to charge him with blasphemy, which the consequence is just three days in jail. So he doesn't think it's going to be a big deal just to try to get Babur to not be saying things that are going to get him actually executed. So Humayun is trying to help him, or at least that's the claim. Uh, Babur is sent to prison, however... Uh, for just the three days, presumably. However, in the meantime, Humayun's father figures out what has really happened. Humayun has a complicated relationship with his father, and, and he's end up he ends up having to reveal the lie he's told about this blasphemy charge, and reveal that actually Babur has threatened to kill the emperor. Uh, so, Haru, and uh, in an offstage scene, Humayun begs for Babur's life in front of his father, and the father says, "Fine, Babur can live, but you have to chop off his hands." So, in scene four, Humayun has to chop off Babur's hands. On stage. Uh-huh. <laughs> On stage. He has to chop off his hands. We were talking before we started recording. I don't know how you'd do Just that. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fake hands or you disguise the event somehow. Not really sure. Scene five is ten years later. This is the final scene. Humayun is still on Imperial Guard duty, apparently due to everything. He didn't get the promotion. Uh, so he's still guarding the Taj Mahal. And he has a flashback scene to this scene that Babur and Humayun discuss quite often about when they were young soldiers and they built a little uh, sort of platform up in the trees in the jungle and lived out there for several days. He has a flashback moment to that, and that's how the play ends. So I, I know that was a little more detailed than we usually do, but the events of the play, are they change a lot. Each scene has sort of its own plot. You could almost make five little mini plays of it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Each of them has a really structured kind of build in them, and and it, it justly or generally just tracks the story along very well and very uh, linearly. Like you can pretty clearly follow this basically couple days of their lives lives together. Yeah, it all takes place within maybe forty eight hours, yeah. maybe seventy two hours at most, except for the major flashback scene at the end. So something you mentioned in your uh, in your synopsis was the kind of myth around uh, the the killing of these uh, 20, or not killing, the chopping off of the hands of these 20,000 Although you, you imagine many of them die. Yeah. <laughs> it's not <laughs> like the healthcare system was able to handle 20,000 people with their hands lopped off in, you know, whatever, seven, uh, 15th century India. <laughs> right, right. They were cauterized, though, so it's probably okay. Yeah, but uh, come on. <laughs> Yeah, it's a rough time. Um, but <laughs> uh, but but now think- we're laughing, and I want you to understand that we're laugh. It's a comedy, okay? It's a dark comedy. Right. We're it's about a, it's in a lot of ways. This is a buddy comedy. It's all presented very very funny, and then there are moments where the stark horror of what's going on play through, and that's how the script is. I mean, Rajiv Joseph is brilliant at that. Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo was exactly the same way. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's it's it, it, that's a useful thing at the beginning of this because we're about to do the thing we normally do, which is dive deep into the dramatic structure and issues of a play that you laugh all the way through. <laughs> it is a, a really, really funny play all over the place. So so, yeah, here's an example in scene one when they're talking about how they want to be on harem duty, but instead they're stuck guarding the Taj Mahal. At one point, Babur just starts pelvic thrusting while chanting harem duty harem duty harem duty i mean that's the kind of dark comedy we're talking about he's talking about a harem a terrible invention of humankind a horrible (laughs) thing but they're excited you know but it's made into this the world of the play this world of odd contradictions between the drama and the horror and the comedy yeah. And 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 just to, to to tie into that, this play is full of kind of odd things. There's magical moments, there's flashbacks, there's like big big sound cues that like have this other world. And that kind of ties back to like this this I wonder if this play is playing with mythic structure. Um it's adopting an event that uh, most people say didn't isn't isn't actually f- fully true. They didn't all have their hands cut off, but they were all asked to not uh, ever work anymore so like the 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 uh conclusion was that they might as well have all their hands cut off and from that the myth grew um so i wonder if it's playing with this this kind of mythic fable storytelling that uh that these two characters are kind of wandering through for 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 the play yeah i mean as much as any play but then at an additional level this play is somewhat about the stories people tell right it's based on this old bloody myth of the taj mahal and then these characters have built into their lives a sequence of myths around which things revolve this this sort of nostalgic memory of being on this sandalwood platform in the forest is one of the myths of their life. Now, we think it actually happened in some capacity, but certainly not the way that they're describing it. There's this great, great story about um, the, the the stars and this palaquin that, um, that Babur is imagining, which is, he, he, he's like, he's created an invention, basically, which is a cart that would tr- transfer, that would carry you up into space into the stars which is you know he's imagining a spaceship more Mm -hmm. or less but back in 15th century india yeah and and he calls i mean that's this that's kind of the 17th century india i I keep saying 15th but it's in the 1600s which would be 17th century india i get those confused the century thing is weird century we're in based (laughs) on the hundred years had to think about it but i'm I'm on board now (laughs) yeah yeah the the invention thing part of the play is one of those kind of interesting anachronistic uh, very self-aware uh, moments of the play, like uh, aware that it's being written in, you know, 2015 uh, because he's he's talking about an airplane or a rocket or something. And he calls it an aero plat for, <laughs> right, <laughs> for yeah. a flying platform. Um, and and so so these these inventions that they're talking about sound familiar. Of course, then uh, Humayun's invention sounds a little bit far fetched, which is like a hole that can go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a transportable hole. It's more like a superpower. Right. And then uh, Babur imagines like that we could put tea in the clouds or alcohol so that when it rains, it rains, you know, sweet, nutritious or alcoholic uh, water droplets that you could drink, which mm-hmm. is fantastical and magical. But then he also says, well, what if that flying platform to the stars that I imagine, what if it just carried you to another country? It just had to go these short distances. And of course, he's talking about something in our, uh, in our early imagining of something like an airplane. Mm hmm. 
And then it's it's fascinating how all of those kind of slowly get uh, de-idealized de through the play. He has this like vision of, of the, the horribleness of other nations having these aeroplats and attacking them. Um, I think it's interesting. Yeah, they turn into warplanes. Isn't that fascinating? I yeah. totally agree. Mm-hmm. Interesting that you, you brought up the tea in the sky. The, one of the big problems with the Taj Mahal right now is that the Taj Mahal is affected by acid rain and is being uh, discolored by acid rain where it's at in India. So even if you tie that into this idea of stuff fall, like a great drink falling from the sky, well, turns out that didn't turn out the way you thought it was going to. That's interesting. To I hadn't known that. It'd be interesting to know how much of that we were aware of five years ago when yeah. Joseph would have been writing the play because Babur does specifically mention that if you did this to the rain, it would be colored and it would have uh, different properties. And so you sort of wonder, did he, did he, was he playing on that? That idea that the, the Taj Mahal is being discolored by the yeah. rain? I don't know. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. But yeah, so, so, so throughout this, the, the, the invention theme throughout the play of them kind of trying to come up with these far-fetched ideas, trying to make beautiful things, and then seeing them eventually come to not is, uh, is, is one of the tougher themes of this play. Yeah, I mean, the um the the competition, the war, the aggression, the back and forth between beauty and I don't know what you'd call it, power, might, governance, something like that. The empire. <laughs> empire, the disparity between those two ideals is really at the core of what these two young men are going through in their lives. The refrain of the play, the thing that five years from now, if I never experienced the play again, I would remember one of the characters saying is when after realizing that they've chopped off the hands of 20,000 of the of the country's artisans and that the emperor has declared beauty will exist, nothing will be as beautiful as the Taj Mahal. Babur realizes that, or at least in his own convoluted logic, he realizes that that means beauty is dying and that he, as the person who had to chop off all these hands, he killed beauty. And so he says a number of times from that point forward, I killed beauty. Yeah. I mean, what a simple, profound, haunting statement. I killed beauty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. That's the, that's the line that's that's going to stick with me as well. This this uh, this uh, knowledge or extrapolation of of uh, act done to an idea of killing beauty is 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 fascinating. Then the the further like dissertation on beauty's role in society is also really powerful. He talks about um, how how he believes that the emperor did this because if there was too much beauty, the people at the outsides of society would move to the center. They would keep coming to see this, be these beautiful things and that beauty would inspire them to live a better life. Um, and well, yeah. So this is, you're talking about, um, late in scene three. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. after Babur has talked about the fact that they might try to take out the emperor, Humayun is trying to talk him down from that and is describing a sort of social hierarchy that even now he would remember that, that at the center, or not remember, that we would recognize, that at the center of society are these this powerful group, especially emphasized by the emperor in this play, that sort of holds everything together. They're the ones that makes the water flow right through the city and makes sure everything's clean and makes sure everybody has enough to eat But by having the power at the middle. And then all around the edges, right, you know, balancing on the edge, teetering on the edge of chaos, are all these people that are on the outskirts of it all. 
And Humayun says, that's why we had to chop off all these hands, because if the people on the edges realized that something as beautiful as the Taj Mahal, perhaps the most beautiful thing ever, was just created by 20,000 regular folks, that's going to topsy-turvy mix up this whole system of the inside versus the outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's 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 like a, just a couple lines of this play, really, maybe even one page of this play. But this like deep through line of that theme still carries through uh, through much of it. This like this conflict between empire and beauty. And this is even further emphasized by Humayun's sort of um, desperate uh blind at sometimes belief in the the emperor and the the system of society they've set up where you don't question what the emperor does the emperor has the right to declare whatever he'd like so in scene one when they're talking about the fact that the emperor has just declared the Taj Mahal will be the most beautiful thing ever built so I'm going to chop off all these hands to ensure it uh Humayun says something to the effect of well he said it so that's the case now that just is how it is and Kumayun then represents somebody if if there's one if one of the two of them if the play belongs to one of the two of them a little bit more than the other i'm not sure it really does but if it did it probably belongs to Kumayun because he's the one in whom this conflict exists most starkly he's the one that already believes in the system and has that system shaken as he discovers or uncovers the ways in which two ordinary low-rung imperial guards have an effect on continuing what he thinks is this divine, divinely put-in-place system of power over beauty, the way that these two common guards keep it rolling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if this if this is a play about kind of deconstructing the myth of something, uh, I think Babur has already done a lot of that work. <laughs> he's kind of begun at the beginning of the play. He's kind of almost irreverent, pretty much just irreverent about uh, the, the way that the government structure works and all that. But I think some of what Humayun is trying to reconcile is at least initially in the beginning of the play, he's talking about how his father has always thought little of him. And so the the extra little bit of uh, loyalty that he is experiencing over Babur probably is also tied to family and how how to um, shape up for family. Yeah, and one of the t- moments in the play where the language feels a little more uh, fitting with the setting, he says something like, "My father longs for my defeat." Yeah. <laughs> the rest of the play is so contemporary that that line stands out a little bit, and I suspect it's supposed to. At the core of Humayun is this father that he's grown up with that plays a vital role through the whole thing. The father is the one he's afraid of initially, who thinks he's going to keep them down at this bottom rung for the rest of their lives. Then, ultimately, the father is the one that promotes them to imperial guard duty in the middle of the play, and then he's the one who causes Humayun to have to cut Babur's hands off near the end of the play. There are a lot of important offstage characters in this play, as there are in most two-handers. But the father plays an especially important offstage role for the guards at the Taj. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, his hands are in everything. You get pretty much every scene, I think, there is, uh, they're there as a, as a result of him of him giving them an order or something to do. Um, and, and then certainly, I mean... The, the 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 pivotal moment at the end of the play is that uh Humayun can't lie to his dad. 
Um, and so he not only he not only gets Babur into this situation, um, he he uh, he puts him past <laughs> past that into a into a realm of losing his hands as a result of the situation because he can't uh, stand up to his dad at all. And this this family conflict then comes into stark stark uh relief at the moment you're describing he can't lie to his father he and babur have called themselves brothers actually they use this expression by b h a i which is i would guess an indian word it, we know that it means brother or friend especially used in the context of strong friendship and they call each other brother by through the whole play they're doing these things that are incredibly intimate you know when they're covered in blood after chopping off all these hands Humayun basically gives Babur a bath on stage. I mean, Mm -hmm. incredibly intimate, loving, deep friendship. And yet, in the moment where all he has to do is lie to his father to get Babur off scotch-free, he can't do it, even for his bi. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 that that scene is like a, a heartbreaking scene at the end of it because you know from the beginning that something's wrong. He walks in, he's visually upset. Uh, Humayun is, and and basically Babur ends up begging for his 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 hands from his best friend. And we, I don't know. It it's especially horrific because we didn't see the hand chopping in scene two. Right? I mean, this is deliberately echoing, the obviously, in, in a very overt way. I'm not saying anything crazy here. Deliberately echoing the hand chopping that they had to do to all of the artisans. And this time we see it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I just, I don't even know how to, I haven't even, I haven't seen the play. I've only read it. And even reading it, I'm just, I clench up. I mean, yeah. oh my gosh, the fact that we have to watch him cut his hands off. And it's not quick. It takes a stroke after stroke. And Rajiv Joseph describes how blood is supposed to splatter, how much at different moments of the mm-hmm. chopping. It's it's visceral. It's disgusting. It's painful. Yeah, and and then he moves on. He does the whole process himself. I think that's notable. He chops off the arms and then he cauterizes the wounds as well. Um, for for the the scene before, there's a whole argument between them about the job being split up between them. Uh, Babur is considerably messed up as one would be after chopping off forty thousand hands. Um about the fact that he did the chopping the whole time. He always uh, chopped off the hands while Humayun got to, got to, air quotes, um, <laughs> got to uh, cauterize the wounds. And from Babur's perspective, he was the one destroying. Uh, Humayun was the one healing. Actually, that's a pretty cool uh, a bit of bit of playwriting there to to make that distinction between the two. However, Humayun uh, insists that the whole, he was part, they together were a part of the whole action of this uh this act of violence against these folks. So I think it's interesting that in that last scene, Humayun does both of them and Babur does neither. Yeah, obviously, obviously. that's an intentional <laughs> choice that Rajiv Joseph highlights. And and the choice to have Humayun do it could be disconnected from that, except that earlier when they're chopping up the hands of all the artisans, they highlight the fact that Humayun didn't have to do any chopping. And mm-hmm. now he has to, and it's his, 
you know, his brother, not his blood brother, but his his friendship brother that he has to do it to. Of course, a, a haunting, terrible experience. And I mean, these poor guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, they're just put through the ringer. You could make a whole play just about the fact that they had to chop off all these hands, and then they got to go through this thing where they have to chop off Babur's hands. Right. <laughs> yeah. No. It's 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 a bad rap for them throughout this bad series of events for them. I mean, even even the scene uh, after they've chopped off the hands and they've been promoted to harem bodyguards or or about to be promoted to that. Um, you get the sense that it's it's certainly not over for Babur. The trauma of the night before, he enters the scene. He's early to that scene, interestingly. He, he shows up early to his shift because he couldn't sleep. And uh, when he enters that scene, you hear the audio of, of that night. Uh, or at least the play, uh, the stage directions call for audio of a loud nature <laughs> to be played over his entry. Um, so, so it's clear that... that even even I think maybe Humayun feels good during that scene, but Babur certainly is carrying a bad series of events with him all the way, pretty much after the first scene of the play on. Yeah, he's experiencing what something like PTSD oh, or some sort just of trauma. Maybe you'd you'd remove the PTSD and just call it outright trauma and shock. I mean, the dude is messed up and. Duh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, interestingly, one of the more magical realism moments, it's a moment that you just accept and you don't ask too many questions about. Although I, I kind of imagine that it's one of those things that if my wife and I saw the play afterwards, we'd be like, what? I mean, they supposedly chop off 20,000 hands in like a matter of hours. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, even if they did 60 people an hour, I did the math, which would be two <laughs> hands every minute, it would still take 333 hours. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, it's an, a moment of magical realism, at least in some way, or just part of the world of the play that they're able to chop off 20,000 hands in one night. Just these two guys. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Again, it's, 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 it's a mythic structure. It, it could work out. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I think you're uh, interesting bringing up the magical realism throughout the play. I think there there's more moments of that. I'm wondering what your th thoughts are on the birds in this play. Um, birds as a theme throughout this play come up. The first scene is kind of uh, one of the, the, the recurring comments or are, are this strange bird that is calling out kind of crazily. Um, and neither of them really know what it is. But, but Babur ends up uh, imitating it for a while. And then there's a pretty uh, kind of a, uh, a description, at least, or or an offstageness of, of them experiencing a pretty holy moment around these birds on a lake in their childhood um, and, and this huge flock of birds flying over them. I'm not sure whether the birds are like a specific element in and of themselves or if they are more connected to maybe it's a both and more connected to this ongoing balance of natural beauty beauty created and found in nature versus man-made beauty 
one of the moments that is important to me, at least in in that ongoing dilemma, is uh, at the end of Act Two, the end of the night where they chopped off all the hands. They're still in shock from what they've had to do. They've had to overcome these physical things they're suffering because they had to chop off twenty thousand hands, which is stark and beautiful. Uh, Humarun is given Babur a bath, and they describe how when they the night before when they actually did turn around and look at the Taj Mahal, even though they weren't supposed to. Uh, I forget which one of them says it. One of them says it looks like it, it looked like the moon had come down and was the moon had become the Taj Mahal. And Babur says the moon was more beautiful than the Taj. Or I'm sorry, that Babur says the Taj Mahal was more beautiful than the moon. And the scene ends with Humayun saying, "No, it wasn't. No, it mm-hmm. isn't." Which is, I think, an incredibly important line in the development of Humarun because that is, according to him, sedition. There's this long-standing debate about you know what is sedition. When are you being seditious towards the emperor? And it's and apparently Humarun thinks anytime you say or do something contrary to the emperor's will. So the emperor has decreed that the Taj Mahal is the most beautiful thing in existence. And at the end of this scene too, after being forced by the emperor to do these terrible things, Humarun says no. He admits no. Actually, the moon is more beautiful than the Taj Mahal. It, it can go by, I think, perhaps, if you just are just reading it. I suspect the production would really need to find the, the core importance of that moment because it's so important. Humarun is engaging in sedition at that point. Mm-hmm. He is saying that what the emperor said is wrong. The moon is more beautiful than the Taj Mahal. Now, I think the birds are part of that. They're this ongoing representation of the natural beauty in the world. When Babur challenges Humarun to think of something beautiful, he's accusing Humarun of not caring about beauty. Humarun only comes up with descriptions of natural beauty. He uh, Well, first he says the Taj Mahal, so I suppose I'm wrong about that, but they immediately discount that. That's the thing they're arguing about, so of course he says that. Name something that we, we aren't arguing about. Name something beautiful that we're not thinking about right now. And he says uh, wine, which would be you know made of the fruit, uh, and then he says women, and then he says birds, these naturally occurring beautiful things. Mm-hmm. That's that's interesting. I like that you're drawing out the kind of journey of of Humayun in that, and and especially if you think of scene the end of scene two as like a, a rebellious moment for him, and then the continuing into scene three, it's interesting to see him get close to being uh, seditious, get close to kind of adopting Babur's uh, uh, world, but then eventually Babur takes it a little too far for him, and he can't he can't. Uh, synthesize his move towards beauty and his 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 uh held beliefs his uh non non deconstructed beliefs around the emperor as god and scene 3 which is the the morning or the evening after they've chopped off all the hands and where they discover that they're going to be promoted to imperial harem duty yeah yeah who even is just like so excited about the 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 harem duty all right <laughs> so up. he's 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 turned a corner right he's come right back around and he ended scene 2 by saying something that's mildly seditious he's he's said something contrary to the will of the emperor and then in scene 3 he's right back on board he's the whole scene 
scene is basically or before Babur decides to kill the emperor. The the rest of the scene before that is basically Humarun saying over and over, see, the system works. We are asked to do terrible things because we're the lowest rung, but then you get promoted. So between those two scenes, he's had his mind changed and he's had his mind changed by having some physical tangible proof that the worldview he's held does work out in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, a kind of a comforting confirmation for him, I imagine, that, you know, despite the awfulness that was last night, um, we're on we're on the way up now. And and he even goes so far as to, to ask, he, he tries to get Babur to not talk about it in terms of the people, but as like this event that they were commanded to do. Like they were commanded to do this thing by the emperor. And uh, and and as as a result, I think that ties into his also seeing both of their jobs that evening as one act. He thinks he thinks of it as an act, not as like individual people getting their hands chopped off. Yeah, and one of the harder moments of foreshadowing, especially if you're not experiencing the play for the first time and you can see it coming, Babur tries to get Humarun to imagine what it would be like if he didn't have any hands. Mm-hmm. And Humarun refuses to do it. But Babur apparently has thought about this a lot. And he he really has thought about some very specific things that would be hard to do without any hands, even as simple as like using the bathroom. Yeah. Which which kind of ties into the this the argument which starts the play, which is around talking versus not talking. Um, that they're commanded by the guard to not uh, talk during their guard shift, something that Babor is just Im- incapable of doing. Um, and and eventually, it's clear that Humayun actually enjoys this part of Babor as well. They both have a hard time not talking to each other. Um, Huma- Humayun breaks the silence a number of times himself. Um, but then at, in this scene three, it comes back again. Essentially, Humayun is asking Babur to stop talking about this stuff and just accept the gift given to them and and kind of carry on and, and, and move on from that moment, which is something that Babur, clearly more viscerally involved in the moment, can't do. It, it, there's so many different physical... I don't know. The, the, Rajiv Joseph has done such a good job physicalizing the internal decisions that these characters have to uh, have to make. That, that 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 moment where you know, can I move on from this or can I not? Has another as is is put into really stark relief too in scene two when the chopping is over and they both have this physical obstacle to overcome. Clearly this has affected them in some obvious way. They they finish the chopping. We don't see it happen. The scene begins with the chopping already over. And uh, Humaroon is, he, he claims to be blind. He can't see. They're both covered in blood, first of all, and the room is filled with blood. But Humaroon can't see. He's claimed to have gone blind from all the smoke of cauterizing these stumps. And uh, Babur, his hands have cramped around the hilt of the sword. He cannot let the sword go. And they have to physically overcome those obstacles together. And then at the end of the scene, Humaroon washes Babur of his blood. It's not especially clear whether Humarun himself gets clean in that moment. I would suspect not that Humarun is still covered in blood and he washes Babur clean of all the blood. Notably, he doesn't, uh, Babur doesn't wash himself clean. 
Mm-hmm. And that is a really clear crystallization of this internal world that they live in where Humaroon wants Babur to forget about all the chopping, wants yeah. to wash him clean of all the blood. Mm-hmm. And I like that you brought out that it, that Babur, Babur did not wash himself. He even tries. He's like, he he kind of does an out, out damned spot moment where he, he's trying to address one small bit of blood on his face and he's covered in blood. He can't. He can't figure out how to get any of it off, and so yeah, Humayun comes in, and and yeah, for oh, oh I, I like it that that he kind of pushes him to get clean, get get over this, get past it, um, and he 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 apparently doesn't need to himself. And there are so many other moments where their internal back and forth, this ongoing journey that they're on, is brought into really stark relief by action moments. It tru- truly, playwriting students should study this play, I think, to discover how an expert playwright turns internal journeys into outward action. I mean, the end of scene one, they they both turn and look at the Taj Mahal. It's mm-hmm. a simple move, but it is so emblematic of everything they're discussing at the time. It's so important that they turn. It's not just a debate that somebody wins. It's a physical action. It's an outward expression of that internal back and forth. And there are so many more of those throughout the play. The play is a study in how to do this so well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. There's there's just so many um you know, it just keeps keeps going. Even even the like the kind of uh the stance that they strike at the beginning, Humayun is like rigidly in in uh in formation basically. He's got the sword straight up, uh really particular, but Babur throughout the scene is just kind of roving around. And and if anything like that's that's almost like a graph of their character types <laughs> or or a, a visual representation of these two characters is is Babur's kind of frenetic energy his ideas he's all over the place as opposed to Humayun who is is much more willing to be molded by the system that he's in and at the end of scene three, when Babur has decided he's going to try to kill the emperor, it's not just that Humarun calls for the guards or declares that he's going to be arrested. Rajiv Joseph is clear. He tackles him. He wrestles him to the ground in this moment. That, that internal what's going on between them is physicalized in that moment in a stark, clear action that is very memorable. Of course, Babur's hands getting chopped off. Yeah. <laughs> I mm-hmm. mean, that is as clear and memorable a physical, visual, visceral moment as you'll get. Mm-hmm. I was I I was surprised at how that moment built so quickly. Um, because Humayun like takes him off the wall. There's a there's barely a fight. Uh, Humayun kind of just wins the fight and gets him to get tied down. So again, this is like Humayun physically enacting something in the in the world, and and uh, Babur losing. Babur loses a lot <laughs> of of these physical interactions. And that's why I think scene five is so important. It's it's a little bit of an odd uh, denouement or odd ending to a play that is so linear. I mean, scenes one through four, we've already discussed, you know, they move within a couple of hours, 24 hours, 48 hours, event after event. This leads to this, leads to this, leads to this. 
then scene five is so different. They've described several dreams or visions or imaginings throughout the play. They've described it within the linear timeline of the show. This is the scene five, the end of the play is the first time where a dream, a memory, a prophecy, something like that, a vision actually is physicalized on the stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a powerful moment of theater magic. There's things apparently like trees apparently appearing from the air, growing from the air, ivy growing on the stage. You know, and my and my technical brain is going like, okay, so you need a you need a fly system, I guess. Um, but I don't think that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly called for in the script. Just an imaginative moment of growth where suddenly you're in a jungle. You have to go from guarding gates to the Taj Mahal to the jungle, and it's it's this this kind of. Uh, this magical moment for them, a younger version of Babur steps out on stage and, and they play this. I think that's an interesting thing too, is it's Humayun in his guard outfit as an adult, um, playing out a scene with Babur as a child. And yeah, you say child, but I want to be clear. I don't think he's like a kid. Yeah. Not a different actor. Teenager or at least a young man. This is the memory that they've told each other several times of when they built that sandalwood, uh, platform in the jungle because they were lost, I guess. And And the sandalwood was going to keep the the snakes and the bugs off of them. So they built this platform to sleep on up in the trees, I suppose also to escape jungle cats. They've told each other about it a couple of times. And now, we see it occur. They're young men, new soldiers. Babur has his hands back, I would think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it's this kind of touching scene. It it contains the scene with the birds as well um, that that I mentioned before, this, this flock of birds that like all of it, the, they, they see a lake through the trees and it's a pink lake and they can't figure out what's going on at first, but it's covered over in birds that all suddenly fly up into the air. And, and there's this, there's a pretty poignant stage direction. Uh, a lot of, a lot of this last scene is actually uh, stage directions. Um, but uh, suddenly it reads like this. Suddenly the immense sound of wings fills the space. Both men are startled by it, and they both watch a gargantuan flock of birds lift off the lake and fly directly over them. It lasts a long time. They keep flying right over them. It's a spiritual experience for both of them. And over the beating of the wings, both men looking straight up, the lines continue. Um, You don't get to see any of that as the audience. It's just watching these two characters see it and and play that. This play deals in those moments, these holy moments that you all you're really doing is watching the characters experience it. Mm -hmm. The end of scene one, they turn and see the Taj Mahal in the dawn light. And the scene actually ends with them holding hands because the moment is so holy. But you don't see the Taj Mahal. The script doesn't say you don't see them, but you don't. You don't see the Taj Mahal. I, I, right. I cannot imagine a production where they tried to show a picture or a painting <laughs> a or something of or, the Taj Mahal in yeah. that moment. It's a moment the, that the audience is watching the experience, not the thing that they're viewing itself. A similar moment, the audience gets to actually see this happen, but similarly described as being holy, is when Humayun cleans Babur from all the blood. It's described as being like a baptism. It's a holy, intimate, uh, very visceral experience for the two of them and then this scene of watching the birds at the end Jackson 
How is this an end to the play, though? Dang it, I was going to try to get that question to you, so you'd have to answer it. Uh, (laughs) It's a rough end of the play. I mean, he's alone, first of all. Um, Especially starting the scene, you feel the aloneness. It's just silence, like there's stage directions. And then you you thankfully get this kind of bit of relief where you see this, this vision of them as kids. And then, but then it goes away. He's left alone again. He's standing by himself at, at the gates at guard position without Babur, obviously. So, so it's, it's kind of in, in some ways you kind of get this like consequences of action. Um, but at the same time, that feels so shallow for what this play is. I think this play is, is, uh, it's hard to say that the end is informing you more than the whole play itself. Um, and and really seeing seeing the end is is evocative of the whole play. The togetherness of these vies, these brothers, um, being sundered by the end of the play by the the actions of Humayun. I think Rajiv Joseph has written on the page something that I think does end the play in a pretty sharp point. I want to read you the stage direction that ends the play, and then. We just have to think about, I mean, how could you ever, without just projecting the stage direction or speaking it, communicate this sharp end? This is the stage direction for the end of the play. He, Humaroon, takes a moment. The, the jungle is all gone. And so Humaroon takes a moment to hold on to his memory of Babur and the raft and the trees and the past. The only place for him where beauty might live. He goes back into a proper guarding position. He stands in silence for a long time. I did a little bit of summary of the stage directions there. But that's that stage direction, for me, ends the play in a very fine point, a very fine uh, way to bring what we've been experiencing to a conclusion. Humarun killed beauty in his own life by mm. chopping off the hands of Babur in the same way that they were worried chopping off the hands of these artisans might kill beauty in the world. I mean, that is a very beautiful metaphor, example, uh, end to what they've been experiencing in the play that echoes what they did in the play. It's really well written. But I'm, unless, I'm not sure, unless you garnered that little nugget that Rajiv Joseph is trying to communicate that the beauty will only exist in the past for Humarun because of what he's done. I, I, I'm, I wonder how an audience would experience the end of that play without knowing that that is what Rajiv Joseph is trying to communicate. Or maybe differently, how could a, project, how could a production team communicate that very clearly, that yeah. idea? That's a that's an interesting question, and I and, and it's kind of sussing that out. You need you need something. You either need a very talented facial actor who can somehow communicate that, or perhaps you know some sort of the the idea the ideas would be really fun to see come about. Like if you were to lean into that moment at the end, whether it's a prop that they shared that he addresses at the end, or whether it's a musical motif or theme that comes up at the end. I agree that without that, without that knowledge that um, he's killed his own version of beauty in the world, um, it, it kind of ends as like a reverse tragedy, basically. Someone leaves the world and the world is much worse off as a result of it. Um, and and uh, I, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't <laughs> what's 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 the there's so many more questions at the end of this play. Like, what's Babur's life like? What is Humayun moving towards now? But you don't get to know those answers. 
And some of it is subtly built into the audio-visual experience of the play. Like the idea that there's a lot of silence as Humaroon is guarding the Taj Mahal, right? So the birds are gone. In the in the first scene of the play, in that little bit where Humaroon guards the sta- guards the Taj Mahal alone, there's still birds, right? So there's this noise of natural beauty that surrounds and engulfs what he's doing. And that at least as far as I read it in the stage direction, and perhaps I would interpret it as a director, that is not present in that final scene in the play. So maybe there's something to that, that he's trying to balance it on both ends, and perhaps the lush, visual, experiential element of the jungle existing throughout and then disappearing, leaving him basically in front of what I would imagine is just a gate or a wall of some sort. That maybe communicates the absence of beauty. But without the the written stage direction, that's a very hard concept to communicate, I think, or at least communicate in a way that an audience member could restate it. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I think there's also some there's some interestingness to the 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 stage direction calls for it to be ten years later. Um, so so that 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 like level of loss after that time and like maybe something could be communicated through the age of the character and that he's in the same spot as when he left. But, but yeah, it, 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 the reading of the play, I, I agree with you saying that it's much more clear. Uh, It's, it's much clearer in the play that, that we're kind of coming full circle for uh, Humayun and, and the realization around the death of beauty for him. Right. He killed beauty. He actually did what Babur was worried that he was going to do mm-hmm. by chopping off the hands of the artisans. Well, Umayun actually did it. He killed beauty, at least for him, in the action that he had to take by chopping off Babur's hands. That's a very, you're right, a full circle is a great way to describe it. It's a, it's a nice, not nice, I mean, it's terrible. Right, right. But it's, it's terrible. <laughs> it's a clean ending to that character's journey. But uh, yeah, it it would be tough. You'd have to find a way to really make that as the ending of the character's journey clear. That it's not just a scene about the memory that he experiences of Babur in the jungle. It's a scene about how that memory is the only beauty left for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that like nostalgia around it, or that that that's deep sadness tied with beauty, um, and and longing for what what was before is is the closest he has left at this point. Which is a sad note to end that play on, <laughs> which is a funny buddy comedy kind of play that is so sharp and so interesting scene to scene, but it ends with Humaroon alone realizing that beauty is dead. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, poor guy. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> well, I think on, on that cheery note is where we will also end our conversation, uh, much like the play does, I guess. Um, if, if if there are, if I know some of y'all out there have probably seen the play. I know one of you has because you recommended it to us. Um, if any of you have read this play, seen this play, uh, done scenes from this play, there's got to be a ton of great scenes in this play for you to do for uh, auditions and stuff like that. So if any of you have interacted with this play before, we'd love to continue this conversation with you. You can find us on all of the or on these three social medias, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The uh, username is at NoScript Podcast on all three of those. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on any of those sites. Let us know what your solve for the end of the play might be. Uh, I already have some like like just practical ideas c- popping through my head. So what, what sort of practical ideas do you have for that last scene of the play to bring around that theme of beauty? We'd love to keep talking to you about it. 
If you'd like to recommend this podcast to somebody else, that is a great way to support the show. We love our patrons over at patreon.com slash podcast, but we also love those of you who are telling people about this podcast. The listenership grows episode to episode, which is just incredible to us. And we know that you probably know somebody in your life that likes scripts, that likes theater, that likes dramatic literature, because you do, and that's sort of how friendships are built. So if you'd like to recommend it, you can send them to Podbean, where we are hosted, but we are also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. A link to the new episode is posted on Facebook every Monday, so you can check out the new episode there. So until next week, oh, next week when we're starting Mini Month, by the Whoa, way. Oh, Mini Month. <laughs> Themed months. So until then, when we're talking about another great play, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We will see you next week for Mini Month. Adios. See ya. <laughs>